In season one of Gertie's Law, we explored most corners of the courtroom. The judge's bench, jury box, witness stand, the dock, and even the press gallery. But there's one area of the court we didn't go to. The bar table where the lawyers sit. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. And they shall be heard. And they shall be heard. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. But the truth. I'm Evan Martin. In the Supreme Court, you'll find two different types of lawyers, barristers and solicitors. There'll be at least one of each for both sides, prosecution and defence in criminal trials, or if in common law, plaintiff and defendant. They all sit around the bar table, which is a big table in the middle of the courtroom. In Victoria, the barristers sit on one side, facing the judge while the solicitors sit on the other, facing their barrister back to the judge. My name's Melinda Walker. I'm also known as Mel Walker. I'm a solicitor in Melbourne, a sole practitioner, and I've been in the industry for almost 25 years. And what is the role of a solicitor? Well, I like to see it as uh, the first port of call, really, for uh, somebody who has come into contact with the criminal justice system. While lawyers can and do work across multiple areas of law, most specialise in a specific field. I solely practice in crime, so um, it's usually when somebody has had contact with the police. So um, I will be contacted by somebody who's in a police station or somebody who's in a prison who will ask for assistance um, and usually who are either about to be charged or they have been charged with criminal offences. What happens then is that upon obtaining all of the information from the police, any of the evidence that they intend to rely upon, um, we'll assess that evidence and make provide an opinion to the person who I'm representing. They can reject it or they can take that opinion in order to make an informed decision about which course that they wanted to take, whether that be to plead uh, guilty to something or whether it be to plead not guilty to something or whether to find uh, some middle ground or some uh, compromise uh, that suits them uh, at the time. A solicitor typically begins working for a client from the point of arrest or when somebody thinks they've been wronged and are seeking resolution through the court. The relationship continues until the conclusion of the trial or any appeal process. This means, particularly in the Supreme Court, that relationship could extend over years. Barristers, however, are briefed by a solicitor, bringing them on board closer to the court date. The the role of the barrister is one of advocacy. So our system is an adversarial system of justice, and the theory is this. I stand up in court representing my client, and I put every argument which I can fairly put in my client's interests, and the judge or the jury sits and listens to those arguments. Dr Matthew Collins AMQC has been a barrister for more than 20 years and was president of the Victorian Bar between 2017 and 2019. My opponent, representing the other side of the case, stands up and puts every argument which can be fairly put in the defence of uh, their client. And then the judge or the jury, who are independent, having listened to the arguments, decides who wins and who loses. 
Now, that's to be contrasted with the way in which the justice system works, for example, in continental Europe, where instead of an adversarial system, they have an inquisitorial system, where the judge plays a much more active role in finding the facts and determining the outcome. We think our system is superior uh, because it enables both sides to put every argument which can be fairly put in support of uh, their client's cause. Many barristers, particularly ones which appear here at the Supreme Court, have a post-nominal of QC or SC, and they get these via a process known as taking silk. Taking silk is um, is, is the, the, the expression we use for becoming a senior counsel or becoming a member of Queen's Council. So in our city states back to, I think, the 1500s, originally QCs were named personally by the monarch of the day in England, so the Queen or the King of the time. Nowadays, it's a mark which is awarded in this state by the Chief Justice to barristers who have reached a level of um, integrity, seniority and learning which merits being uh, given, the, given the mark. So it, it's, a, it's, it's a mark of um, accomplishment as a barrister. In Victoria we've got roughly 2,100 practising barristers and I think just under 250 QCs or SCs, uh, so about a bit over 10%. Now, there's absolutely no difference in terms of prestige or a method of appointment between a QC and an SC. New South Wales did away with the title of Queen's Council in 1993. But in Victoria, barristers can choose which title they want, QC or SC. Does it have an actual impact in the courtroom or is it purely ceremonial? Uh, No, it does have an impact in the courtroom. So generally speaking, a silk will appear at the bar table with a junior barrister, won't appear on their own. That's partly a result of history. Historically, there was a time when QCs were not allowed to appear at the bar table without a junior. That's no longer the, the law. But the sorts of cases that silks, QCs and SCs do tend to be much more complicated cases and cases where there's a real advantage in having a bigger team. So what makes a good barrister? Perhaps the best people to ask are the solicitors who brief them, giving them their work. When you're briefing a barrister, what kind of qualities are you looking for? Well, the first thing is they've got to have the relevant expertise and experience. Rob Starry has over 30 years' experience as a criminal defence solicitor. They've got to show some level of empathy towards the client. doesn't mean that they have to subscribe to their views. This is particularly true in terrorism, as an example. And um, they, you know, usually if it's a trial, we want them to be fearless and be prepared to run the trial if it's necessary. Courage is an important component. Melinda Walker. You're also looking at the personality of the accused, of your client, and whether or not they're going to fit the personality of, of barristers because at the end of the day you want to ensure that there's a, a, a positive working relationship between the barrister and the accused, and that goes for me as well. Uh, if my client and I don't hit it off, then you know, best they go somewhere else because you want to uh, ensure that you have open communication, you have trust and that you can get proper instructions from them so that you can work together. Do you ever get sick of barristers getting all the glory in the courtroom? Um, not really. I, I think they work extremely hard and certainly the barristers that, uh, that I work with, and I hope they're listening, we work together and uh, they may ultimately uh, get, the, uh, get the glory. I'm more than happy to remain in the shadows. I'm um, more than happy for them to uh, have cameras shoved in their face instead of mine. I don't need the glory.
they've got their role to play, we've got our role to play, and they're, they're different roles. We manage the case, we prepare the case, we do the research, we do the further investigations, and you know, the barristers have got a limited role, that is to present the case. So I'm happy for them to get the glory. So according to the barristers, what makes a good solicitor? Um, well, I think really good instructing solicitors have a really good relationship with the client, regardless of who the client is or where they come from or whether they're paying or on legal aid. Forget all of that. Professor Felicity Gary QC is a barrister who works both in Melbourne and in London, specialising in crime. Have you got a good relationship with them? Can you communicate with them? Can you understand the instructions that they're giving? Can you give them advice and be sure that they understand? Often a lot of that work's been done before they come to you as a barrister. So instructing solicitors who can client manage are are an absolute godsend. And, And most criminal instructors know that that's their best skill, if you like. Uh, The second is where the instructor has already managed to identify the issues. So they're not coming for you to do everything. They've already focused the case and they'll be able to see the wood from the trees, if you like, the decisions that need to be made. So that when you come to the case and you come to discuss strategic approaches, they've already thought about those questions in advance. And overall, it's an ability to work with you as well. It's got to be someone that you can get on with. And that doesn't mean you're going to be best pals for the rest of your career, but you are with some. When I started regularly sitting in on court, one thing I was surprised by was how well the prosecution and the defence seemed to get along. Maybe I've watched too many films, but I thought there'd be a bit more animosity between the parties. But during the breaks, there's often a lot of friendly chat and even a bit of laughter. Courtesy, dignity and respect is what courts are about. Whether it's the person sitting in the dock, the person giving evidence, or the people working in the room. And I think it's most unfortunate where courts are not run in that way. If you're sitting in the dock watching everybody arguing, falling out, or you're a judge and you're seeing incompetent counsel, if you like, or the the, the prosecution and the defence are just bickering with each other all the time. It can be a very unpleasant experience. And if courts are not run with dignity, courtesy and respect, and we don't all treat each other professionally, then it all takes ten times longer. It's a miserable experience. You're part of a profession. And those people on the other side are part of your same profession. Now, you might not like them as a person outside court, but you're still going to get on with them for the purposes of presenting the case as well and as efficiently and as cleverly as possible. You need to be able to respect their abilities the same as your own. Occasionally we laugh it off as well. There's some dark humour that we, a bit like medics, you, you occasionally do laugh these things off where no one else would. And members of the public might be a little bit horrified and we try not to, but every so often there is a bit of a release and the only people who really understand that are the people who also work in the same system. Once a lawyer-to-be has finished their many years of studies and training, before they start practising, they first have to be admitted. You can't practise as a lawyer unless the court says that you can, and so the admission ceremony is what that process is. You have to have a formal order of the court saying that you can practise as a lawyer. Chief Justice Anne Ferguson was appointed as a commercial court judge in 2010 and moved to the Court of Appeal in 2014. 
In 2017, she became the first solicitor to be appointed as Chief Justice, a position typically held by former barristers. The ceremony starts really before you get into the court because to be admitted you have to have a certificate from a body called the Victorian Law Admissions Board that says that you've done the study, you've done the, got the qualifications and also that you're a fit and proper person to be a lawyer. So it starts with that. The ceremony itself is a process where each person has a lawyer that represents them. They stand up and say a few words. If the court pleases, I appear to move that Terry Therese Pollard of the Wiradjuri Nation be admitted to the legal profession as an Australian lawyer and as an officer of this honourable court. And I so move with the certificate and recommendation of the admissions board. And then I ask the person whether they're in court. Is Miss Pollard in court? They stand up, they bow. And that happens for all of the usually about 60 applicants. After we've gone through that process, the court official, called an associate, asks the applicants to take the oath or affirmation of office. And they then take their oath to say that they're going to do what they're supposed to do as a lawyer and as an officer of the Supreme Court of Victoria. You and each of you swear by Almighty God that you will well and honestly conduct yourselves in the practice of your profession as members of the legal profession and officers of this honourable court to the best of your knowledge and ability. I swear by Almighty God to do so. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, lawyers are currently being admitted to practice without any formal ceremony. But I did manage to attend a ceremony in March last year before the restrictions were in place. Following the ceremony, the newly admitted lawyers gathered in the court's courtyard to celebrate and take photos with family and friends. My name's Phoebe. What's been the journey to get to this point? Uh, a long one. <laughs> um, started off doing arts and um, switched to a law degree. Decided that was really what I wanted to do at that point. Spent a few years in university and college of law. And was doing that while I was doing my graduate program, so it felt like it's been a really long journey. Law wasn't what you always wanted to do? Um, well, no, actually, I think since I did legal studies in high school, I know that sounds a bit cheesy, <laughs> but um, I think after I did legal studies, I thought, you know, this was something that I could do, and um, I didn't, unfortunately didn't get the marks for it initially, but, you know, I got to where I did in the end, so... What attracted you to the law? Oh, good question. And I think that's probably the hardest question to answer sometimes. I think it's just the idea of the system and just the process and just being able to work, you know, to represent the interests of a client. Newly admitted lawyer Terry Pollard was also able to represent her culture at the ceremony. What's today been like? Um, so today was really good for me. I was admitted into law and was able to wear the traditional possum skin cloak and was really proud to do that today. It's been a, a tough gig studying law, especially as a mature age, and also not even just finishing your law degree, you've then got to go on to College of Law and, you know, it's, it's pretty tough, but it's well worth it in the end. When did you decide you wanted to get into law? I think coming from an Aboriginal background there's always one black sheep in the family and I had a brother like that um, so he was always in trouble with the law and I did justice studies and thought I needed to know more about the law to help him and my culture What, what is the next step for you? So currently I'm working at 
JIRA, the Aboriginal Family Violence Legal Service. Yeah, we do child protection, family law and intervention orders, yeah. I am Dominic Anselm Sabater Fajardo. What's today been like? You've got your family and friends here. Uh, they actually flew in from Singapore. Yeah, so it's a, it's, a huge, it's a huge deal for us. So they flew in on Thursday, and uh, I've been spending the weekend with them. And uh, uh, my friend uh, from law school, he, we, we started law school together, and he's actually moved my admission. It's crazy. If the court pleases, I appear to move that Dominic Anselm Sabata Fajardo be admitted to the legal profession as an Australian lawyer. Yeah, it's, it's really, really happy that this has all gone so well today, yeah. How are you feeling in court waiting for your name to be called? Honestly, pretty nervous. I thought I was going to mess it up. <laughs> you have to you say the simplest sentence, but you feel like you might mess it up. Um, but it, it went okay, yeah. It had butterflies. Turns out some things never change. Do you remember when you were admitted? Very clearly. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Uh, I was terrified. I only had to say two words, I think it was. But um, I was terrified. And I very... Solicitor Melinda Walker was admitted to law in the 1990s. I had left school at 15 and I was a single mum at a very early age and so I returned to school and I had escaped a family violence uh, situation. Given that I was a survivor of family violence, um, I'd been through uh, a number of experiences with the court system uh, that um, I was unhappy about. And uh, so when I uh, then joined the Fitzroy Legal Service, uh, one of my goals was to um, address uh, that disparity between the services and the court user. Uh, so I started a, a program uh, to try and integrate those services with a, a one-stop uh, phone contact for women who were trying to escape family violence. I uh, was uh, at uni throughout that time with my young kids and worked in a practice in Collingwood for about eight and a half years and then started my own practice back in 2003. And here I am. (laughs) You've been in the gig for a long time. Do you have any particularly memorable cases or career highlights? Mm, I think um, probably the most memorable case would be uh, the case of uh, Luke Middendorp, who uh, was charged with murder of his um, uh, ex-partner. Uh, and it was at the time when the uh, homicide laws uh, had recently changed and the uh, creation of defence of uh, defensive homicide. We'll be delving deeper into this issue in a later episode on manslaughter. But defensive homicide was a controversial offence where the culpability fell somewhere between murder and manslaughter. The conviction of defensive homicide was available if you had a genuine belief that you were acting in self-defence, but that that belief was unreasonable. So there were all of those aspects in that particular case. And um, Mr Middendorp, who was charged with murder, was ultimately found guilty of uh, defensive homicide. Luke Middendorp was sentenced to 12 years in prison. It caused significant debate in not only the legal community but the uh, academic uh, community and uh, has been analysed to death, I think, to try and personally, I think, further demonise Mr Middendorp. The the defence was available to him at the time, whether or not that be right or wrong, 
uh, on a modern view now, he was entitled to be found uh, guilty of that offence and not of murder. So I think that that was memorable because it, it certainly showed me how the case was then manipulated through uh, academia and also popular comment. So it was a difficult one to to reconcile, certainly as a survivor of family violence as well. And, uh, and I think that that's where your professional shield becomes extremely important as well. Other memorable ones, I think, is where uh, it's usually the first opportunity sometimes for people uh, to, to get assistance um, through whatever means that the criminal justice system can provide to them. And when they first come to you, they may be uh, distant or from their family or completely detached from any education or any employment, find themselves homeless. A lot of young women that I've looked after um, uh, find themselves in un- under the influence of um, older, um, more influential males. That then, uh, again, brings them in touch with the criminal justice system. And I think they're probably some of the most memorable because that's given that young person the opportunity back uh, to get their life on track and make something of their life at a stage in their life in their early teens or early 20s where it could really uh, go one way or the other. Solicitor Rob Starry always knew he wanted to work in criminal law. I grew up in the western suburbs of Melbourne and it was always a social justice issue primarily for me and in fact that's the way I've maintained my practice largely. Curiously, my father and grandfather studied and practiced law in Hungary before the Second World War and then they came here in 1949 as post-war immigrants, never practised um, I, I always supported the underdog. It's the individual against the full resources of the state. And, you know, to be blunt about it, I've always had a ideological and philosophical position in supporting accused people, in individuals against the, as I say, the full resources of the state. Are there any cases you've worked on that you're particularly proud of? One highlight was applying for um, bail for Jack Thomas, the first... Um, person to be prosecuted in Australia for a terrorism offence. Jack Thomas, better known in the media as Jihad Jack. His conviction was overturned by the Court of Appeal because the evidence relied on to convict Thomas was obtained under torture in Pakistan. The Court of Appeal deemed this evidence inadmissible and Thomas was released. He was later convicted on passport offences. Thomas was also the first Australian to be placed on a control order under the 2005 Anti-Terrorism Act. And Jack Thomas was, um, to use the terms of the um, psychologist, was a concrete thinker. He was not a sophisticated person. He'd been a convert to Islam. He had cooperated with the intelligence community um, when he returned to Australia. And I knew the case was contaminated because there's a legal problem with about the way the record of interview had been conducted with him when he was arrested um, in Pakistan. And um, I thought that had the, the risk of contaminating the whole of the proceedings. And that's the view the Chief Magistrate took when he released him on bail. So against all expectations, we ran the, or I ran the application and he, he was released on bail. 
um, and um, ultimately acquitted. Felicity Gary QC. So I've been at the bar 25 years. Before that, I taught people to ride horses and I dropped out of school. So there's a whole heap of you could unpack there. But focusing on my life as a lawyer, I went to what was then known as bar school in London in the Inns of Court off Fleet Street in the Temple. Very Dickens. I did a general common law privilege, eventually specialising in crime, particularly involving women and children. And I'm a member of the independent bar, which means you could be sent a prosecution brief one week and a de- defence brief another. I used to do 30,000 miles in a car a year going to different court centres. And you develop a practice that sort of suits you as a barrister. So mine was going to court and having an argument every day, whether that's in a trial or on appeal. And I've sort of carried that into taking silk. So I'm now what's known as Queen's Counsel. And I'm a woman Queen's Counsel, which means I'm a very rare bird. I tend to get really difficult cases or really difficult clients or a combination of the two, and I enjoy the challenge. I first saw Felicity in court in 2018 when she was defending Hamza Abbas in a long, complicated terrorism trial involving three accused and eight barristers in court. Abbas was ultimately found guilty and sentenced to 22 years imprisonment. The sentence is currently being appealed. I'm just really proud of doing that case. It had so many difficult aspects to it, including a very vulnerable client. It not only tests your skill, but it also tests the judiciary, the public, the jury, everybody on how do we deal with these very difficult cases where you've all got, also got some vulnerability in the dock. We're very used to hearing about vulnerable witnesses, but cases where you've got somebody vulnerable in the dock and it's a really serious allegation and it's a sort of public nightmare trial, it's a terrorism trial, people are frightened. To keep that type of case on track, to keep all counsel friendly, we managed to do the case in a friendly way with the judge as best we can, professionally friendly, you know, we didn't all go out as friends or anything, but, you know, to ensure that we made the best legal arguments that we could and to for the judge to be able to manage all of these barristers and all of the issues that arise you have to be proud of that to be involved in something so complicated Felicity Rob and Melinda all work as criminal defense but just along the same bar table mere feet away sits the prosecution my name's Pat Burke, I'm a Crown Prosecutor and I've been in that role for almost three years now but otherwise at the Criminal Bar for about 15 years. We appear on behalf of the Director of Public Prosecutions. We prosecute a person who's been charged with criminal offences. Uh, so in that sense we're opposed to the defence barrister who's representing the accused person. So there's that competition if you like or contest. I spoke to Pat over Zoom. Coincidentally, the day after it was announced, he would be taking silk. Congratulations on the news. Thank you. How long have you known? Uh, No, we only find out at the same time everyone else does. So it was a good day. Did you always know you wanted to sit on that end of the bar table? Uh, No, I started off as a defence solicitor advocate for a long time and then went to the bar and initially I was a defence barrister 
I moved to prosecutions and now that's all I do is prosecute and it's just developed that way. Um, I think it's useful to have experience of both sides of the bar table. I think it makes you a better barrister. So I think it's a, I think it's a plus if you, if you do both. So the defence works in the interest of the accused person. Who are you working for? If the prosecutor had a client, it would be the police informant who's the police officer who's investigated the offence has charged the person with a particular criminal charge. Um, and that's the police officer that puts together all the evidence, some of which the prosecution will present to a jury uh, in endeavouring to have the person found guilty of that offence. Although the police is the closest thing to our client, it's, uh, it's an unusual relationship because prosecutors have, I think, lots of various duties to various, I hate to use the term, stakeholders, uh, but the police informant is only one of those. Is the victim or the family of the victim another? Yeah, look, he's certainly a stakeholder. I don't consider the victims as close as the police informant in a prosecution. The victims are often, for me, uh, to some degree, not in all cases, some cases, a motivation that you always have in the back of your mind that um, these people have suffered uh, what can sometimes be a terrible experience, um, losing a loved one and and, and things like that. But it's important, I think, to remain detached from that because juries, judges, the, the legal practitioners are a step away from those people who have been directly involved in this, what is often a sad event. And so it's those people who are detached can make better judgments as to how it should all be um, sorted out. And so if you're too close to victims, that you know, I think that can be compromised a little bit. Once the trial's over and let's say the accused has been found guilty, is it the prosecution's role to push for the highest possible sentence? I think that's a really good question. Uh, And the answer might depend on who you ask. Uh, It's not my view. I think the prosecutor's role, both during the trial and in in the sentencing process, is to assist the court to arrive at a result that's correct in law, is unlikely to be appellable, and no matter how experienced a judge might be, I think he or she always seeks and appreciates that assistance, that guidance, as much as they can be guided. So I think um, the proper position is to make an assessment as to what an appropriate sentence is. That's not always the most harsh sentence that's available. There must be, just in logic, many cases where the most harsh penalty is not necessarily the appropriate one. And so I think Prosecutors need to be careful about having a a default position. More jail is a better result. Do you think the public perceives the prosecution as, I guess for lack of a better word, the good guys in the courtroom? Um, Look, I think that's probably fair. Um, The majority of the community don't commit offences, so I suppose they have a view of people that do. I think it's also perhaps, I, I hope, somewhat based in the community's understanding that the prosecution forms an important part of the process, part of the machine that seeks to protect them by dealing with offenders and hopefully um, outcomes serve some kind of rehabilitation to reduce the risk in the future and, and issues like that. So the community want people prosecuted, but they want them prosecuted fairly and within the rules, and that's, you know, that's very important. There's quite properly, rules to be abided by. And I think most people would say that's a good thing. 
While murder, manslaughter and terrorism may be the first to come to mind when you think of the Supreme Court, the majority of its work is in the common law division. I love common law cases. Margaret Kent has been a common law solicitor for the last 20 years. The common law is old in a good way and also ever new in a good way. So it's it's obviously based on, on some very old principles of people trying to nut out solutions to problems for hundreds of years, but it's constantly finding new ways to respond to new problems. In a sense, you're working in an area of the law which can change depending on which way your case goes. Well, the law's always changing uh, and, and that's that's the the pleasure of it, I think, and if you if you do the job well, um, then you can be involved in changing it and hopefully for the better. And I think that's part of of the pleasure of doing the kind of law we do is that we're not just trying to to bring cases that fit within existing law, but we're always striving to make hopefully the legal system better for the people that we represent. That that's really what we aspire to. What are the kinds of cases you do? I have a dual role. I work in both dust diseases, with the particular focus on asbestos-related diseases and silicosis and other silica-related diseases, and also in class actions. Asbestos-related diseases uh, often have a very long latency from exposure to diagnosis, so most of our clients will have been exposed to asbestos 40 years before diagnosis. So in order to find out where they are exposed, how they are exposed, and to get evidence, we often have to do a lot of investigation, and I enjoy that work. And we're still seeing a lot of dust disease cases, just not as many from asbestos. Cases have been stable in the asbestos area for some time but they certainly haven't started to go down yet in numbers. They reached a a stable peak if you will but we've yet to see significant decline unfortunately but what sadly we're seeing now is the rise of a new type of silicosis so if anything we just have more dust related diseases and that's particularly tragic in Australia where we have known about the dangers for decades and decades. It's a particularly harrowing area of the law. Um, How do you cope with that? Um, I think most personal injuries are pretty hard going. I suppose in in our area a lot of the clients die and a lot of those people are incredibly brave and, and they stick in your mind. And I guess you cope with it by remembering what your role is. You can't solve people's health problem. What you can do is get them the best legal result and if you remain clear about what you can offer them, then that helps and also good colleagues help, uh, good supports help. Important to work in a good team. Matt Collins QC was admitted to practice as a lawyer in 1994. I did a a law degree in Adelaide, which was my hometown, and then I moved to Melbourne and became an associate to a judge in the federal court. Now, that is an unbelievable job. As a young lawyer, you sit in the courtroom all day and you just absorb what goes on around you. You get to see outside court the way judges think about cases, and you get to watch different styles of barristers. And I knew pretty much in the course of being an associate that this was where I wanted my career to progress. Um, So um, after being an associate for about a year and a half, I uh, went to work for a major law firm uh, where I stayed for about six years as a solicitor before coming to the bar. And you specialise in common and commercial law? 
That's right. Historically, when we were still a colony, for example, barristers would do every kind of case, from criminal cases, commercial cases, common law cases. As um, the world has become more complicated, Melbourne has become bigger, the cases have become, you know, the stakes are higher, most barristers, like most solicitors, tend to specialise nowadays in um, one or a small number of areas of law. So I've gravitated towards uh, commercial law and common law, very occasionally will dabble in a bit of criminal law. Um, most criminal lawyers specialise in criminal law and don't cross over terribly much. Uh, but you know, some of our greatest advocates going back uh, you know, decades were all-rounders who could stand up and do a murder trial one day and then the next day do a big commercial case. I think it's we're the poorer for the fact that barristers find that increasingly difficult, but it's a consequence of the increasing complexity of the marketing which we uh, operate. It's not unusual that common law trials are the ones that attract the most media attention. And Matt's worked on some of Australia's most notorious cases. Is there a bit of an adrenaline rush being involved in such high-profile cases? <laughs> Look, I think there's an adrenaline rush in being a barrister generally. You know, you, you, you're not doing your job if you don't feel nervous when you stand up at the bar table. I've had the great privilege of being involved in some of the, the, you know, the most prominent cases of the last generation or so. I mean, the ones that stand out for me are things like uh, former Treasurer Joe Hockey's case against the then Fairfax Media, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Age and the Canberra Times. Uh, I acted for the Fairfax Media in that case and had the an, an enormous sort of career highlight of being able to cross-examine the sitting Treasurer of Australia for a day and a half. I was cross-examining in the course of the afternoon and continuing the following morning. Overnight, people were tweeting ideas about questions I should ask. Most of them completely nutty, uh, but you know it's a, a sign of just how interested people can be in the running of these cases. Um, but you know the high-profile cases, there's also a, there, there is a buzz absolutely about being in court and then seeing the way in which you've performed in the course of the day, scrutinised in the in in the media, seeing caricatures of yourself in the cartoons. You know they, they always make you look fat with a wig. I don't know why that is, but that's what the cartoonists do. Uh, there's definitely a thrill about that. In 2018, Matt also represented Hollywood actress Rebel Wilson in her landmark defamation case against Bauer Media. I've never seen media coverage of that intensity of any non-criminal case in my career. I've never seen anything like it. You know, a media scrum outside the court every day, Rebel and me being chased down the road with cameras in our faces. Uh, on one day, a quiz was being run on FM radio about what was going to happen in court that day. I mean, th that, that's uh, the courtroom as entertainment. And, uh, you know, as the barrister, the challenge is to remain focused on the only thing that matters, which is what's happening in the courtroom and filtering out all of that extraneous stuff that's happening elsewhere. And often with the, in those high-profile cases, you know, there's a bit of a, a temptation to play to the court of public opinion. That's always a mistake. You know, in, a, in a courtroom, the only people that matter are the decision-makers. In a case before a judge, the judge alone. In a case before a jury, the members of the jury. And a judge will know immediately if you're playing to the media um, gallery rather than addressing your submissions to the court. So how do barristers select which cases to take on? Sometimes they don't have a choice. Barristers have a thing called the cab rank rule. And what that means is that we can't refuse a brief. If a client wants to engage me and they can afford to pay me and it's an area of my expertise and I'm physically available to do it, I'm not allowed to say no, just as the cab driver can't refuse to pick you up for, for the fare. 
Well, look, I'm a taxi. I take the next brief that comes along. I say yes to everything. I find the time to do as much as I can. I work with as many people as possible to get things over the line. So, yes, you get the next taxi in the row. Sometimes people want the comfort or the elite taxi, I suppose, in the Uber world that we live in. You know, they might choose Barrister X <laughs> or they might choose the, the, the comfort or the elite, I suppose. So occasionally you're selected... Uh, because of who you are or what you've done but that's the next brief for you so in terms of your cab rank rule that's the next one to come along so unless you've got a real ethical problem with not taking the case then you just take it providing you're available and there's no other impediment to you doing the case itself then you just take it and say yes and we're all self-employed so you're much more likely to say yes than no subject to any ethical issues When I visited solicitor Melinda Walker, she led me into her small office and showed me a huge bookshelf filled wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling with folders. I think there's four shelves, uh, which is probably about three or four metres long, which is full of all of my current cases at the moment. Uh, Each person gets their own folder uh, and uh, they don't come down until uh, their matters are finalised. So... Uh, it's always full. It's uh, it's never. I've never had uh, had much space um, in there at all. There must be close to a hundred there. Yeah, I think uh, I run probably about a hundred and fifty cases um, at one time. Yeah. The cab rank rule doesn't apply to solicitors. So how do you decide what cases to take on? I pretty much take on everything. It's probably a really bad idea. Probably why I've got so many folders in there, but. Um, I think I, I'll take something on, uh, certainly if I have the capacity to take it on. Um, I will maybe not take something on if uh, it's um, uh, something that will require more than what I can provide, um, such as in time, given that I am so busy. Um, how you remedy that, I suppose, is that you uh, then enlist the assistance of a barrister Um, so that you then work together on the case instead of having to work on your own. Lawyers can be expensive. It's the stereotype and it's undeniable. But Melinda, like many lawyers, takes on pro bono work. You end up uh, doing a lot of pro bono work in this industry um, because a lot of the more vulnerable people in our community uh, come into contact with the criminal justice system and people who cannot afford solicitor services and um, the only way that they can be represented is through the funding of Legal Aid. I always saw it as extremely important in my role, which is which is really quite a privileged role, to ensure that I can provide the same service to all people, whether or not they are paying me or whether or not they are funded by legal aid. We're finding certainly that in terms of those more vulnerable people in our community, the homeless, people with severe mental illness, people with uh, drug addiction, are in no way in a position that they could even dream about paying for uh, legal services. And so it's an important part of our function, I think, to um, ensure that those people uh, are properly represented from all aspects of our industry, no matter um, how experienced you are. Solicitor Rob Starry. 
it's a funny thing. This first came up actually through my daughter, who's a teacher. And when she got her year 12 results and she did well, I was hoping that she'd studied law. And um, she said to me, you know what, doesn't matter what my results are, I want to be a teacher. That's my vocation in life. You know, just that little statement had an impact on me because that's true. We look at our job as a vocation rather than just as a way to generate income. That means when individuals don't have either the resources or the support or the finances to conduct a defence, then we we assist them. And there are some groups, the environmentalists, we look after generally, and then other cases where people are just impecunious, they don't have any resources at all. They need to be represented. It impacts upon their future employability, their capacity to travel overseas. But, um, yeah, they're the sorts of cases we do pro bono. So once a barrister is briefed by a solicitor, how much preparation goes into the case? It's perhaps first important to understand what might form a brief of evidence. Tim Marsh was chief counsel at Victoria Legal Aid for seven years until 2020. I practice primarily in crime, but in a criminal case, say in something like a homicide, that might consist of multiple lever arch folders of material, witness statements, photographs, maps, transcripts of interviews, transcripts of telephone calls, phone records, um, a whole variety of information that can be produced in one form or another at, at the trial. I guess the first part of this process is that you look at the charges, what's the person alleged to have done? Every charge is composed of elements. It's a bit like a recipe. It has essential ingredients, any one of which is missing, then the charge will fail. And I suppose the first pass that you're doing through the brief is to get a sense of whether or not or or where there might be some issues in the prosecution case. So are there some matters that they can prove easily? Are there other matters that they might struggle to prove? Certainly in the lead-up to a trial, such as a murder trial in the Supreme Court, You'll spend, you know, many hours and days poring over any individual statement, looking for any particular contradictions or flaws or inconsistencies, comparing it to other statements in the brief to see if there are other sources of evidence that contradict it, preparing cross-examination, preparing your overall strategy to the case and your closing address to the jury. All of these things could take, you know... in a complex case, anything up to to months of preparation before you even step foot in court. I can give you my most recent experience. Felicity Gary QC. I think I picked up a brief in July last year and finished off the trial in December last year. Now, the trial didn't start until the October. It's impossible to say how much preparation do you do because it's how long is a piece of string. But you're not going to be able to represent someone properly unless you do the preparation. So... It can be all-consuming for months, and other times it's an advice that you can knock out in half a day, depending on what it's about. With large, complicated trials in all of the court's divisions, murder, terrorism, defamation cases, for example, there can be an extensive pre-trial period, which involves both parties making legal arguments to the judge about how the trial is going to run. With so much to discuss and the importance of the decisions made, pre-trial can go on for longer than the actual trial. In fact, there's a case we've been watching in court which has been in pre-trial for the last two years. That pre-trial argument could relate to 
all manner of types of evidence. It could relate to the admissibility of phone records, it could relate to the accuracy of uh, translations of conversations. Um, it could also relate to entire uh, ways in which evidence can be used. As you're looking through a brief, you're looking for any issues that might mean that the prosecution aren't able to lead a particular piece of evidence. Um, is this a piece of evidence that the prosecution ought to be permitted to adduce before a jury? Or is there something about it that means that it should never go to a jury? So let's say, for argument's sake, the police come into possession of a particular exhibit. There's a suggestion that your client's DNA is on that exhibit. But on a closer examination, you realise that the police didn't have a warrant to search the premises at which the object was seized. So there's an issue perhaps there of impropriety or unlawfulness. And then the pretrial argument's going to focus on, on technical legal issues, for example, about whether or not the level of Im Im improperness on the part of the police is outweighed by the probative value of the evidence. Sometimes those sort of issues about what evidence is admissible and what evidence is not admissible are really what the whole trial's about. And the entire nature of the course of the proceedings can turn on those rulings. It's not uncommon to see, for example, in a complex murder trial that there might be three, four or five rulings from the judge in pre-trial argument about specific pieces of evidence. And depending on which way those go, you might see a matter proceeding to trial, it might be a guilty plea, it might be a plea to lesser charges. If the case does go to trial, then it's up to the barrister to turn all of the preparation, the research and the evidence into arguments for either the judge or the jury. In a judge-only trial, uh, how much do your arguments change depending on the particular judge in the courtroom? Does that have a big impact? Oh, it, it's enormous. Matt Collins, QC. The judge has complete control over the procedure in court and, and, and the styles, as, as with, um, with all of us, you know, there are very, often very different styles. So there are some judges who are notorious for intervening, you know, not letting you get more than five words out before they're asking you questions. And that's usually because the judge is very well prepared for the case and understands immediately the matters which are troubling him or her and wants you to focus on those. Other judges um, will be much, more, much less interventionist will sit back and just allow the arguments to unfold before them. So it's quite a different art. You know, if you've got a judge who is going to allow the argument to unfold before them, you want to have structured it very carefully in a way which is calibrated to persuade. If you know you've got a judge who's going to be firing questions at you all day, you need to have thought really carefully about how do I answer the one question that I really wish the judge wouldn't ask me. And when you're in front of a jury, how important is it to develop a relationship with the, the six people on the jury? It, it's really important. It's a different but related art. So in civil cases, and defamation is one of my areas, they're mostly heard before juries of six members of the community. Remember, criminal trials have a jury of at least 12, but in common law, it's only six. So obviously members of the jury don't have the background in legal training that a judge has. And so one needs to take that into account when presenting arguments. I think there's a bit more room for rhetorical flourishes, but you don't want to go too far. You don't want a jury to think that you're a show pony. You want the jury to take you seriously. 
Um, and uh, But you don't, the other difference is you don't get feedback from a jury in the way that you get feedback from a judge. You know, I've often sat uh, making arguments before juries and thought, gosh, I've really got no idea what the jury is thinking because often the jury is very careful not to give away those signals. A judge, on the other hand, um, particularly an interventionist judge, will leave you in no doubt about what the judge is thinking about your case. Criminal cases tend to be the most controversial in the community. Um, there's one question you must get asked a lot, and that's, how can you defend a monster like that? <laughs> you always get asked that. You always get asked that. And I think, um, look, I think the primary position is that everybody deserves to be defended. Melinda Walker. There's a lot of cases that you will come across where the evidence would be strong against somebody and then that comes back to giving them an opinion about what their prospects of an acquittal would be and what the uh, difficulties with their case would be. At the end of the day, the decision to defend a case is really um, comes down to that of the accused. It's not for me to judge whether or not they are guilty. It's for me to ensure that whoever determines, whether it be a judge alone or a magistrate or a jury, whoever decides that is deciding it on admissible and relevant evidence. Uh, and if a guilty verdict is handed down, then so be it. I think you, you also tend to have a professional shield um, as well in order to do this job because you do come across some very challenging evidence. You do come across uh, some very challenging personalities and clients who are very, sometimes very difficult and confronting. And I think that you develop this shield in order to remain objective uh, which is really what, what our job is, to ensure that they always get a fair trial. Tim Marsh. When it comes to serious offending, I think it's often a very difficult thing for members of the public to sort of get their heads around the nature of the job of a criminal defence practitioner. So if I'm appearing in a plea for somebody who's committed a terrible murder... What will be reported is me saying a lot of positive things on behalf of the person who's done a terrible deed. And I can well understand how that's a difficult thing for a member of the public to sympathise with or to understand. But it has to be seen in its full context. And that is that there is a prosecutor up the other end of the bar table whose job it is to say all of the worst things about the offending. I call it the pub question. Felicity Gary QC. How can you defend someone who's guilty? How can you defend a terrorism trial? How can you defend someone accused of child abuse? And there are lots of answers to that question, actually. Well, somebody's got to is the easy one. So my most recent three trials in Melbourne have been terrorism trials. Two ISIS and one right wing. You have to realise that this is one of the most serious allegations in the world that someone convicted of that will go to prison for a very long time. If they're wrongly convicted, then that's a horrendous miscarriage of justice. But what happens if a lawyer actually thinks their client is guilty? Well, I think something that most people don't understand statistically is that 90% of all people plead guilty. Rob Starry. Either because they plead to the charge they face or because the charges are negotiated. Um, and so most people plead guilty. There are, there are a few people who say, I'm pleading not guilty no matter what, 
we don't ask them whether they're guilty or not guilty. We say, we'll look at the, the Crown case against you and we'll make an assessment and we'll advise you. Most times they take our advice. Occasionally they don't um, and they'll, they'll run, run a case. We don't moralise about their behaviour. We don't make any value judgments, and we know that they've got a presumption of innocence. Things get a little more complicated, however, if a client tells their lawyer they are guilty. If a client tells you they are guilty, you can't then put up a positive defence. Now, what does that really mean? You'll be told that by everybody. You, you couldn't, for example, say that someone was acting in self-defence if they'd admitted to you that they weren't. That's the simplest one. Or if they said they were there and wanted you to say they weren't there. I, those are what I mean by positive defence. So they say, well, I want to call this witness as my alibi witness to say that I was at home at the time of the offence. Well, hang on a minute, you've told me you weren't at home, you were there. So I, I can't call that witness. I can't put the case that you're, you're running an alibi. I can't do that. It's dishonest. It's a lie. You're lying to the court. You're presenting a lie on behalf of your client. So the rules quite properly say you can't do that. So you can test the evidence. You don't leave someone without any representation. You're there to make sure that the trial goes properly in terms of admissibility of evidence, procedure and so forth and to make sure no one is misrepresenting your client's case to the court. It becomes fairly obvious to a judge pretty quickly that you're not putting a positive case, and it will be pretty obvious to the jury as well. It's a really awkward situation to be in, and it's why you have to think of yourself and the system as more important than the individual. So your role as a barrister, as Queen's Counsel, as a team of barristers, is to ensure as best we can that the jury are given the opportunity to make a decision based on properly admitted evidence, where material has been properly disclosed to the defence, decent legal arguments, decent arguments on the evidence, so the jury can understand the case without leaping to conclusions one way or another. Providing someone with a fair trial, whoever they are, is a wonderful position to be in. My role is to ensure that the rule of law is correctly upheld. It's a community service and we're very privileged to be able to do that and not everyone can do it. And we have the skills to make sure that the court and the system and the rule of law is more important than all of us. More important than the judge, the barristers, the client, the allegation, even the victims. You've got all these vested interests that in a sense are less important than the system itself. If you've got a question you'd like answered, shoot us an email at gertie at subcourt.vic.gov.au. That's G-E-R-T-I-E at S-U-P-C-O-U-R-T dot Also, if you're enjoying Gertie's Law and your app allows you to, drop us a rating and leave a review. It really helps. Gertie's Law is produced by the Supreme Court of Victoria. Thanks for listening. <laughs>